to, to give me some feedback. I said, sure, I love feedback. I, I'm one of those people who actually does truly enjoy feedback. I said, yeah, that sounds great, Brian. I'd love, I'd love to hear some, what went well, what I need to improve on. And he, he looked at me and he said, you know, the, the sermon was solid, it was good, but you didn't stop moving the entire time. So apparently, I didn't know I was doing this, but apparently as I was preaching, I was just going back and forth like this, like some madman. So um, by way of introduction, uh, maybe if I can give this responsibility to you guys. So Krista and Rachel, if I start moving, like pacing like a, like a madman, feel free to like wave your arms, tell me to calm down. So that's on you guys now if I move like a madman. So, and uh, Sarah, my wife, told me that I should just try to hold on to, to this. Hold on. So I will do my best to be grounded and stationary, but if I get nervous or excited, we'll see. All right. So uh, Brian said uh, a few months back, he said, Keith, would you, would you be interested in preaching? See, I'm doing it. I'm moving. I can't help myself. I get so excited. Uh, Brian said, would you have any interest uh, in preaching? And I said, uh, yeah, I, I, that sounds great. I'd, I'd love to do that. He said, okay, I'm actually looking for some people to speak in December. I said, Christmas sermon? Yeah, I'm on board. I will do a Christmas sermon. So I'm thinking, you know, shepherds, wise men, livestock, you know, manger. And Brian, a, a few, uh, about a month or so, he goes, yeah, so uh, let me give you the text you'll be preaching on. It's 2 Samuel 7. And I kid you not, I wanted to be like, Brian, that's the Old Testament. <laughs> Christmas happens in the New Testament. Why would I... Preach from the Old Testament. So if you're not familiar with 2 Samuel 7, that's the, the Davidic covenant. That's where God promises to David that he'll have an everlasting throne and an everlasting kingdom. Really full passage, really awesome passage. But, but again, Brian, that's the, that's the Old Testament, not the New Testament. So I, uh, I cheated and uh, I started preparing for this sermon. I, I read through 2 Samuel 7 pretty quickly. And then I went to the New Testament because that's where Christmas happens. Um, and I read Luke one thirty-two. So I'm going to get to 2 Samuel 7, but let me start with Luke one thirty-two. An angel visits Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, she sa- and he says to her, He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David... And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So, okay, uh, Brian, you might be on to something. Maybe we should start with David. So I started reading through Luke, and, and then I started reading through 2 Samuel 7, and this interesting thing happened. In reading 2 Samuel 7, I realized in order to understand in order to understand Luke, you have to understand 2 Samuel. And in order to understand 2 Samuel, you actually have to go all the way back to like the beginning of this whole thing in Genesis. So here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to try to do today. I'm going to start in Genesis. I'm going to go forward through King David, and I'm going to end at forever, eternity. Okay? Yeah. And I have about 15 to 20 minutes to do that. So, so here's why. Here's why that matters. You can't understand Christmas unless you understand Genesis 3. You actually can't understand the importance of Christmas if you can't understand Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is a story about the fall of man, original sin. And here's what I'm going to suggest to you. I'm going to suggest to you that Christmas is actually about the Garden of Eden. 
The point of Christmas, there's, I got some confused looks. I'll get there. The purpose or the, the whole thing about Christmas is actually about, about the Garden of Eden. Okay? All right, so 2 Samuel 7. So if you, if you have your Bible, your phone, hop over to 2 Samuel. We're going to start in verse 8. I am going to read it, so if you prefer to just listen, that's also fine. To set up this passage a little bit, David is looking around at his kingdom. He's, I, I'm in, I don't know if this is actually true, but I'm envisioning him in his, in his home. He's either in his home, his palace, or he's looking at his palace. And he starts thinking, I have an extravagant place to live. Me, the king, I have an extravagant place to live. God doesn't have an extravagant place to live. I want to build him, I want to build him a sanctuary. I want to build him a house. He asked the prophet uh, Nathan if that's okay to do, and Nathan says, go for it. This is great. So Nathan says, yes, do, do what you want to do. And then God says to Nathan, actually, d- don't have him do that. And let me, let me tell you what I want you to tell him. So what I'm about to read, 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8, is what the prophet, is what God is telling the prophet Nathan, who will then relay this to David. Good? We oriented? Good. Okay. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Okay, long passage. Shake it out. We're still going. A couple more verses to read. You still with me? We're good? The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish. This is where it gets real good. So if you're tuning me out before, tune me in. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Okay. Listen very closely to these these next few lines. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Kind of sounds like that Luke 1 passage, right? Throne and kingdom. Two main takeaways that I'm going to say the the crux of it now, and then I want you to put it on the shelf and we're going to return to it. So the main things that I would say, there's a lot there. It, built into that passage, there's a promise to uh, actually his son, David's son Solomon will build the temple. There's a lot there. But the thing that I want you to remember is the promise of an everlasting kingdom and an everlasting throne. What are the two things I need you to remember? <laughs> that actually felt we were like in Algebra 1 and I was having you recite something. That was unenthusiastic. Let me know if I need to start running again. I'm, I'm willing to do that if that will keep you entertained. Okay, but it's very important to understand the context of this passage. Again, David wants to build a house for God. He wants to build a palace for God, a location for God, a throne for God. And the prophet says, no, or God says through the prophet, no, that's actually not, not it. I don't want you to do that. 
Okay? All right, so let's, let's go all the way now back to Genesis 3. Dan Hayner preached a sermon a few weeks ago on, on Genesis, and it was great, and I don't, I don't want to rehab, I don't want to spend too much time here because it was, it was really good. Um, he suggested the, the chapter Genesis 3, which is again where Adam and Eve first sinned, you, if you look in your Bibles, there's probably a, a header above that passage that says something like the fall of man or original sin. For people that have their Bibles, is there anything else you see in Genesis 3? Is it one of those? Fall of man? Okay, great. I want to suggest a slightly different title for Genesis 3, which is Exile from God's Presence. Exile from God's Presence. If you think about uh, what happened in Genesis, uh, understand the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve. First and foremost, he creates them. So he, he literally creates Adam with his own hands. Now, for, for those of you that have kids, that might be a metaphor or, or something that's, that's somewhat easy for you to understand. You have your kids. You are, you are instrumental in their formation, I would argue. But you, you, you feel a strong connection to the things that you create with your own hands. This is a, a little bit of a silly example, but let me give you another one. Um, I'm not very handy. Uh, I am the opposite of handy. When, when, when Sarah and I have a project around the house, I kind of have to like... I kind of have to pump myself up, you know, read or watch like 17 YouTube videos. Um, so I, about six months ago, there was this project I needed to do, which was to repair. Um, our heat is a, kind of our baseboard heat, and there's a, there's a cover over that. So the cover was really banged up. I needed to replace it. So I go to the hardware store, get all the tools. Uh, I take off the existing piece. I'm, I'm drilling in the, the new piece. I'm, I'm affixing it to, the, to where it needs to go. For those of you that are handy, you're probably laughing because I don't even know what to call that piece. I just know it, you know, was there and I needed to screw it in. That's what I knew. So anyways, as I'm, this is a true story. As I'm screwing in the last screw, I pop up to my feet and are are there any Fixer Upper fans out there? The show Fixer Upper? Yeah. So I literally start yelling, Chip Gaines got nothing on me. I just say it over. Chip Gaines got nothing on me. I was so proud of the work that I had done. The best part of the story is Sarah was standing right there just looking at me like, you are so pathetic. (laughs) But anyways, I felt pride in what I had created or what I had done. And secondly, and this is really, really, really important. After Adam and Eve sin, and they're about to, before they're thrown out of the garden, they sin and then they're wandering through the garden. In Genesis 3, it says this. You don't have to flip there, but I'll read it. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, think of how close you have to be to someone in proximity to hear them walk. Think of how close you have to be to someone to literally hear them walking. Adam and Eve were close enough to God that they could hear him walking. How wild is that? Okay, so you have this very close and intimate relationship that God has with his people in Genesis. And what happens? Well, they sin. God gives them a commandment, don't eat from the fruit from this tree, and they choose to do that. They introduce sin into the garden. So what happens? God has to throw them out of the garden. And why does he have to do that? God is so good and so holy, he can't be in the place that, that's, that where sin is introduced. The, the, the garden was perfect. They introduced sin. There's a breakdown there. So from that point on, because of the introduction of sin, 
Adam and Eve are exiled from God's presence. Okay? Genesis 3, let's, let's start moving this way towards 2 Samuel 7. So if you go to, last week, uh, Brian preached on Abraham. If you look at the major characters in the Bible, and really everyone in the Old Testament uh, moving forward from, from Adam and Eve, there is a closeness to God, but I would argue it's a bit different. So when, when Abraham interacts with God, it's through a vision, or God speaks to him, right? But Abraham doesn't, doesn't go into his presence. There's not a place where God is that Abraham goes to. So they're very close, but it's, it's different. Think of Moses. When Moses interacts with God, Katie, I'm so sorry if I knock over your piano. I will do my best not to do that. Um, think of how God interacts with Moses. It's a burning bush. When God is leading the people through Israel, it's, a, it's smoke during the day. It's a pillar fire at night. But his presence comes and goes. It's not consistent. Think about when Moses is on top of Mount Sinai. He says, God, I want to see your glory. And what does God say? If you saw me, you would literally die. So I'm going to kind of walk past and you can glance at me, but that's, that's really the most you can take for right now. Isn't that interesting? We're exiled from God's presence. Adam and Eve are exiled from God's presence. And then we have this interesting relationship that moving forward through time. So let's stay on Moses for a little bit more. Do you all remember what, what happens, what God commands the people of Israel to do because he wants to be in their presence? It might be a bad question. The tabernacle or the, 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 the tent of dwelling, does that, does that ring a bell? So God actually commands, commands Moses to create a, a, a place for him to be. And why does he do this? Exodus 25.8 says, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So God so badly wants to be with his people. He says, I need to create a way for that to happen because I want to be with them. So over the next 15 chapters in Exodus, there's all these specific instructions for how the people are to create this, this tabernacle, this tent, because God wants to dwell in their midst. A couple things to note about that. First, it's literally a tent. Tabernacle is a fancy word for a tent. And why does it have to be a tent? Because the people of God are still exiled. They're still wandering in the desert. And for God to be with them, he's got to be able to move too. So he's literally in a tent. Two, in the, the very description of how the thing is to be built, there are references back to the Garden of Eden. I don't want to spend too much time here. But no, even in the way that it's designed and decorated, there are, there are metaphors and symbolism calling back to the Garden of Eden. And lastly, the third thing about the, temp, the, the tent, the tabernacle I want to call out is um, there, there are priests in the tabernacle and the, the priests have certain responsibilities. Their role in the tabernacle is to keep and guard it, essentially. I'm summarizing a bit, but their role in the tabernacle is to keep and guard it. What's interesting about that is those are the same instructions that are given to Adam in the garden. You're supposed to keep and guard and protect the garden. Okay. Are we tracking so far? Does it make sense, this progression that I'm going on? Okay. So we were, Adam and Eve, close relationship with God in the garden. They introduce sin, which creates a barrier between the presence of God and Adam and Eve. God so badly wants to be with his people that he creates a way for them to dwell in his midst with very specific instructions, build a tabernacle. I will be in that tabernacle. I want to dwell in your presence. Okay. 
Now let's fast forward to 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17. So we're back to the Davidic covenant. Again, what I want to focus on in this verse is how God promises to David that his house and kingdom will endure forever. Remember why David wanted to build the palace? Or sorry, I say, I say palace. Remember why, God, why David wanted to build the temple? He wanted a palace for God. He wanted to be near God. He wanted a place where God would have, have a home. Can you imagine how David must have felt hearing, hearing the promise from God? God says to him, you'll have an everlasting kingdom and an everlasting throne. Now, this is uh, a terrible example, but try this on for size. If I were David, I would hear something like, Keith, don't worry about paying for college for Lucas, Karis, and Jake. That's taken care of. They're going to be set for life. And what's more, no one in your family is ever going to have to worry about money ever again. Money, finding a job, all the things that get you anxious about you know, your, the future generations of the Crafts family, that's taken care of. Let alone to be a king forever. Lucas is president forever, president of the world forever. I don't know why I picked Lucas and not my other kids. Karis is probably more likely than Lucas. Um, don't, don't tell him I said that. But think about it. God is saying your family's set for life, right? So here's the interesting thing. God says this to David. And then if, do you know what happens next? Solomon becomes king. David's son Solomon becomes king. He builds the temple. And do you know what happens after Solomon? This everlasting kingdom gets split in half. There's so much dysfunction in this kingdom that it becomes two kingdoms. You fast forward a little bit further in time, and do you know what happens to that kingdom? They're conquered. Do you know what happens to the temple? It gets destroyed. So what do we do with that? There's a promise of an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne, and then a couple hundred years later, He's, there's, no, there's no one on the throne and the, the temple is destroyed. There is no kingdom. Here's what I would like to suggest. The kingdom and the throne that God is promising to David is actually about the Garden of Eden. It's God fully in charge. There is no sin, thus no separation between God and man. Not the kingdom in the way that, I don't know exactly what David, how David heard that. I think he probably understood it better than I would. But the kingdom is different. It's different than what you'd expect. So to be very clear, I'm just going to make a very explicit connection. Jesus, in Luke 1.32, Jesus is, is that, the, that person in the line of David. He is the everlasting kingdom and the, and the person on the everlasting throne. If you think about kingdoms, you don't expect babies to come to save them and to establish them. You don't expect, you expect a warrior, not a baby. You expect a, a horse, a tank, not, not a donkey. You expect a palace, not death on a cross. So the challenge is, are we missing the kingdom? Are we missing the actual point of the kingdom? 
David wants to build a temple because he wants a place for God in his presence. And I would say, David, your, uh, the ask wasn't wrong. It's just not the right question. What David should have asked for is, how do I be with you? How do I be in your presence? That's what I want. God, I want you on your throne. I want you ruling. What does that look like? That's us in your presence and no separation. No sin separating us from your presence. Okay. You know, it is amazing how fast time goes when you're up here. Holy cow. All right, can I tell you a Christmas story? Is that okay? I told you my sermon was a Christmas sermon, so can I I tell you a Christmas story? Okay. It goes like this. God wants to be among his people, but God is too holy. God has to fix the sin problem. So God sends a baby, fully human and fully God. He walks with his people. He dwells in their midst. He eats with them. He laughs with them. He cries with them. He has a relationship, a true relationship with them. But as long as there is sin, the garden cannot be fully realized. There is still some separation between God and man. So what does God do? He defeats sin and death on the cross. He removes once and for all the separation. Jesus goes to heaven and sits at the right hand of God. His throne and kingdom are established forever. It's good news, right? It's really good news. What's the problem with that? Do you feel like you're living in the Garden of Eden? Maybe you feel like you're in the presence of God. Maybe you don't. Maybe you do. But do you still sin? Do you still experience or see the brokenness that comes because of sin? Can I tell you another Christmas story? Was that a... Okay, thank you, thank you. God so badly wants to be in relationship with people, with his people. Real relationship means the freedom of choice. While people have choice, they will choose sin. Although sin is no longer the barrier to us being in God's presence, it does mean the garden is not fully realized. So what does this mean for you? God is so into relationship with you that he invites you to keep and protect the garden. God is so into relationship with you that he invites you to keep and protect the garden. In the same way Adam and Eve were given the responsibility of keeping and protecting the garden, in the same way the priests were given the responsibility to keep and protect the tabernacle, I'm suggesting that God invites you to keep and protect the garden. Here and now. God co-labors with us. God invites us to advance his kingdom with him. So David, the, David in asking to build the temple had the kingdom a little bit wrong. The kingdom looks a little different. The kingdom is here, but not yet. You, prob- you probably all have heard that expression. So 1 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God. God who makes things grow. He who plants And he who waters are one in purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Matthew 24, 14. And this is the gospel of the 
This is the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Who's preaching? I think there's a call for us to be preaching. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So, do you get it? Jesus comes, removes the barrier of sin. We are in God's presence now. Okay? We're not in the full realization of the garden because sin is still in the world. Our responsibility in the garden today is to keep it and guard it, to advance the kingdom. Okay, so what does that mean? I'll start, uh, I'll I'll conclude here, or start start towards my conclusion. We'll see how long I can, see how short I can make my conclusion. So what does that mean? Again, practical takeaways. What does that mean for you all today? At this point, the band can kind of slowly start making their way up. First, Christmas is about about the garden. Jesus coming, coming to earth is about the Garden of Eden. He wants to be with us, and he wants to get rid of sin. So here's a super practical thing I, I suggest you do. When, when, when uh, you sit down Christmas morning and you're about to open presents, some of you might read uh, the Christmas story, which is in the New Testament. Some of you might read the Christmas story. Some of you might not. I encourage you to just stop and say, God, thank you that we are in your presence today. Thank you because of Jesus and his work on the cross and the removal of sin, we are in your presence today. Secondly, don't try to build a temple for God. Don't try to build a temple for God. God is with you. He is in your midst right now. So here's the thing uh, that I, I just love, and I have to remind myself all this time. Do you guys feel like God at times can't keep up? Like, hey, I'm really busy, right? Like, I got a lot to do. And yes, I will come and I, I will be in your presence on Sunday morning. But, like, literally I have the picture of you going on a run. Like, going for a jog. And I think we all, whether we realize it or not, we... God isn't with us on our run. He can't keep up. God is always in, you are always in God's midst. You don't have to go somewhere to be in God's presence. That's what the everlasting kingdom and the everlasting throne is about. The phrase, take it to God. We're going to take it to God. Where where, where are you going to give something to God? God's here. You're in his presence right now. Okay, Uh, Brian, you can make your way up too. The last thing I'll say, I'll kind of end here. Again, this is, a Christmas, this is a Christmas sermon, right? Uh, what's the word that gets thrown around a lot at Christmas? Emmanuel. You ever think about that? It's a Christmas word, right? It's a Christmas word, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. The story of, of Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. And where, where are we most with God? It's the Garden of Eden. To understand Christmas, you have to understand the Garden of Eden. You want to come on up? Stand up. Okay? Respond. So a couple of things I just want to encourage us to do right now. The first is, hey, maybe you're here this morning and you, you would say, I don't really have a relationship with God. 
And what Keith is saying is that Jesus has taken care of that. So for you today, maybe the challenge is to respond right now is to say, you can start a relationship with God right now. Jesus has removed the barrier. All the things that would separate you from God in your life, all the things that